I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero carbon future a reality. In this episode, my conversation with David Crane, the former CEO of NRG. Today, David is a clean energy investor. Back in 2015, he was CEO of NRG, one of the biggest power producers in America. And he was fired by his board for his ambitious plans to make the company a renewable energy titan. In this interview, I spoke with David about his vision to make NRG the Amazon or Google of distributed energy. And he explains why he was pushed out of the company for taking necessary risks. David is the epitome of what courage looks like. I loved our conversation and I'm grateful to have him as a colleague. The interview was recorded live at Powerhouse's headquarters in Oakland, California in 2019. Our friend Julian Spector sets the scene. All right. Thank you, everyone, for being here. I'm Julian Spector from Green Tech Media, and this might be the fullest house uh, we've had so far. So very excited to be here. We have David Crane, who's quite possibly the, the foremost champion of, of clean and distributed energy to come out of the halls of, of the, the largest uh, companies in, a, in America. Uh, he is notable for within the clean energy world, both for, for the job he did and for the job he lost. Um, he bet uh, a lot uh, on, on the future of distributed energy. He, he t- took over as leader of Energy Energy uh, back in 2003. They were emerging from bankruptcy. He was diversifying, uh, getting into retail energy, and uh, figured that there was a great growth opportunity in this new thing called distributed renewable energy. Um, he, he led energy into uh, distributed solar, you know, residential, commercial, larger scale, as well as EV charging and uh, a, a number of other um, initiatives. But uh, it's, it's a great example of how you know, the long-term vision and short-term profits don't always line up. There was, there was, uh, took several years for, for rooftop solar, for commercial solar, for community solar to really hit their stride. Arguably, that's still uh, an ongoing process. And uh, Wall Street investors started to get impatient. And um, that uh, culminated in, in David leaving that position in 2015. Um, but he, he left a lot of arguments. He left a lot of uh, calls to action that uh, a company that produces energy on a grand scale has a moral responsibility to consider its its impacts on on the global climate and consider how future generations will uh, judge those those activities. Uh, and he he also believed that in the long run, you know, clean energy was the the, the right bet. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, elements to that. Argument that are that are still playing out. Not everyone agrees on on these things, and and making the right call between what's right uh, for for years into the future and what's good for for stock value in the next quarter or two. Um, there's still quite a lot of quite a lot of debate happening in America. Um, I, I think it was notable he uh, left uh, the company with uh, a, a letter that included the the phrase. As a company that aspires to growth, there is no growth in our sector outside of clean energy. Um, since then, he's gone on to stay active as an investor, an advisor uh, in in the space. Um, but I think here today we will learn 
how he he got those ideas, how he how he got uh, interested in in deploying those arguments at, at the the level of energy. And uh, I'm very excited to hear what he has to tell us. Thank you. All right. Welcome to Powerhouse. Welcome to What It Takes. I'm Emily Kirsch. I am the founder and CEO of Powerhouse. And as of yesterday, I'm now publicly and officially the founder and managing partner of Powerhouse Ventures. Um, Earlier this morning, a piece came out on PV Magazine that uh, gave me the honor of being dubbed the Oprah of clean energy. So in the spirit of Oprah, if um, you reach under your seat, one of you has an envelope. I'm totally serious. One of you has an envelope. And the person with that envelope, <laughs> the person with that envelope, you won a free ticket to the next What It Takes. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> There's a second envelope. One of them is empty. That's just to build suspense. (laughs) Oh, then somebody else. Somebody else. Someone else has an envelope under their seat with a free ticket for what it takes. It's taped under the seat. (laughs) I have a feeling it's Dan Sugar because he's not checking under his seat. Did everyone check under their seat? (laughs) There there we go. There we go. (laughs) All right. Congratulations. (laughs) So welcome to this episode of What It Takes. David Crane, we are thrilled to have you on the show. If you could start, as we do with all episodes, and tell us a little bit about where you were born and what you were like growing up. Uh, uh, Well... Uh, I was born in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, and I, I grew up in the Midwest. I, you know, spent most of my growing up years in the Chicago area. Uh, you know, if you want to know what it was like, uh, if you've seen the movie Ordinary People that was filmed at my high school, you know, <laughs> while I was there, uh, actually the year after I left, uh, and it was pretty, you know, to be frank, it was pretty, you know, classic, uh, you know, middle-class American upbringing as the youngest of three children, you know, two older sisters who wouldn't talk to me. And, uh, and you know, my father was in business, uh, uh, in the uh, aluminum business. And uh, like most people in the, in the 70s, I pretty much just didn't want to do what my father, you know, had done. You know, it was sort of a, a, a mild degree of anti-establishment, uh, this, but so that's sort of the background. <laughs> Um, in high school, were you an athlete? Did you do? I was an athlete, I, uh, and I I was an athlete. I was a soccer player, and I I played soccer in college for a couple of years. Or as, as I like to say, I I had a good seat uh, to watch the soccer games, and uh, <laughs> uh, you know, in college because I was, uh, you know, I found out that in the United States at that time, the, there were four hotbeds of first uh, first rate soccer. Uh, in the high school level, and I was not from one of those areas. So uh, anyway, but uh, yeah, I was a soccer player. I played tennis as well. But uh, but yeah, I was an athlete. Um, I heard in high school you were misdiagnosed with having ulcers, but it turned out to be Crohn's disease of the stomach. <laughs> yeah, that's what I've thought for all my 59 years. But I, you know, I'm I'm just want you to know I 
turned 60 in two days, and I'm not happy about it. And, uh, and as part of that, uh, just this last week, I, I went to the Mayo Clinic for a once in every 60 years thing. And, and you know, they, they obviously sort of focus on things that they know are problems. And I was telling them this story from the 1970s, and they're like, that's just so unlikely. So uh, that's, that's my own family lore that um, I thought I had ulcers, and then I had uh, part of my stomach taken out, and they told me in the pathology report that it was Crohn's disease. And the, but, I mean, it's, you know, that all ended. And the only thing that, that ended up being a, a lifetime thing for me about that was, um, was that when you get ulcers as a young person back then, everyone thought it was because you, you were very stressed out. And, and, and so, so for years going through, like, high school, people would just, hey, why can't you relax? You know, and I'm like... Yeah, no, I'm actually pretty relaxed. I don't know. <laughs> you know, so I tried to affect the demeanor of not being sort of an intense because I didn't want to be told to relax again. So, uh, so I, I like to think I carry that. But it, it may, I like to think because I ultimately, as a CEO of a company, you know, and, and don't, I mean, I will tell you that one of the best jobs in the world is being CEO of a big company because you know, in the right circumstances with properly motivated, highly capable people that you're paying private sector salaries, you really don't do anything. But, <laughs> but, but, uh, but tell other people what to do. And, uh, and I literally, and, you know, we, we were a pretty perkless company, you know, but I actually literally thought everyone walked out of a building and there was a carry car waiting for them to take them to their <laughs> next spot. You know, when I, I had to learn the Uber Lyft thing when I got fired. Uh, um, okay, back to, back to childhood. <laughs> no, no, but, but I, I, I do like to think that maybe that, you know, I, you know, you know, being a CEO is about decision making. Mm-hmm. And I always found that, you know, I, I, one of the things that made it easier for me is like making decisions wasn't hard for me. And I didn't stress about them after they were made. I made the best decision at the time and I didn't wring my hands about it. And I like to think that was related to back then that, look, this is business. Business is important, but, you know, you know, health and all that's life and death uh, stuff. Agreed. Agreed. Um, what did you learn about parenting from your parents? Um, my parents, you know, uh, I would say one of the things I learned is my my parents trusted us. I mean, compared to my wife, who was from Louisiana, and, you know, her parents tried to micromanage her, you know, and through the power of the purse string. And her family was wealthier than my family, but my parents would never have done that. They, you know, from the time I would say I was 14, um, my parents were like, look, you know, you're old enough to make your own decisions. You can ask our advice. I mean, where I wanted to go to college, anything like that, they they didn't, uh, they would ask me what my thought processes were. And, uh, um, but they, but they're like, these decisions are yours. And so um, I would say that that was one of the most, you know, important things. And I also remember I went to law school and, you know, when you graduate from law school, you have to take this ethics test you know, to pass the bar. And I'm, and, and then you, and you take a special course to study for the ethics test. And I just remember resenting it so much. I'm like, I don't need to take this course. My parents taught me the difference between, uh, you know, right and wrong. And so, you know, I, I don't know. I like to think, um, you know, sort of the grounding, you know, came from that. Mm-hmm. What did you want to be as an adult when you were in high school? Well, it's interesting that you should ask that because I think it's relevant now for me, you know, and I, and I hate to date myself, but from a career perspective, the defining events of, of my growing up was actually Watergate. 
And um, I believe then and I believe now that basically the American legal profession saved the republic during Watergate. And my hero was Archibald Cox, the first special prosecutor. And, and there, and you know, this may sound sort of geeky, I was 14 years old when Watergate went down. I decided right then and there that I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to go to Harvard Law School because when Cox was fired, he went back, you know, to Harvard. And, and, you know, and that sort of provided the drive, you know, to do well in school. And I went to Harvard Law School and I was assigned him as my, uh, oh, as wow. my, uh, as my advisor wow. when I got there. That's awesome. Um, where, before law school, where did you go to undergrad and what did you study? I went to Princeton University and I studied international relations. Uh, and then what did you do immediately after? Did you go straight to law school? Yeah, I did go straight to law school, which I would absolutely not recommend to anybody <laughs> if you're uh, raising kids. Um, and uh, and the reason I went straight to law school was because, um, you know, back then, uh, and I, I don't know if this is the case still, if you had taken out student loans, if you had to stay in school, if you ever went more than, I think, six or nine months, your student loans started to come due. And so, you know, I sort of graduate, you know, and my parents have made it clear is like, yeah, you know, we're going to pay for your law, your college tuition. You want to go to graduate school. It's on your dollar. And, you know, I didn't have, and, and so, you know, I didn't really feel like I had a choice. And I, I would say that, you know, my wife and I, with our own kids, you know, the thing that we've emphasized to them more than anything is that, um, you know, that that freedom to I mean, you know, we're obviously well off by anyone's uh you know, what we're going to do for you is we're, you know, give you the opportunity to have the life experiences you want to have when you're in your 20s rather than force you sort of what I think unnaturally early into, you know, into a career uh, thing. So um, I wouldn't I, you know, I remember my first day of law school. Uh, I was just like, I mean, I worked hard in college, you know, like a lot of people do. And, you know, to be back there in September you know, for my like 19th year in a row of school. And, and to be frank, law school is not very interesting. You know, and I just remember reading this stuff the first day. I'm just, I can't believe I'm back here. You know, I, I was burned out on day one but you of did law it. school. You, you finished. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> and then what did you do immediately after law school? Did you start work? Right away, did you take any time off? Well, you know, one of the reasons I, I want to study international relations at Princeton is a kid from the Midwest of, you know, some means but not a lot. I'd never been outside the United States, and I think I majored in international relations because <laughs> I wanted to travel. And so, you know, you graduate from law school, and then you take the bar exam at the end of July. And this was July 1984, and, you know, you take the bar exam, I think, like on July 21st, and then the LA Olympics started the next day. So I spent two days as the official viewer of the Los Angeles Olympics. I think I just sat in a room and watched 12 hours of coverage. <laughs> but then I traveled, I backpacked around the world for uh, four months uh, before I started work at the law firm. And that was, that was a great, great experience for me. Where'd you go? Yeah, you know, pretty much a lot of places, you know, those round the world tickets, you know, sort of started in Europe. But but, but it, um, I actually had spent, this was my second time abroad, I had spent a junior semester in uh, London working for a member of parliament. Uh, and so I had been to Europe, uh, but, but, and I went back to Europe. But the main thing that was interesting to me was uh, being in Asia, which I'd never been before. And my first uh, landing spot in Asia was New Delhi. And uh, I got there, um, I think it was one day or two days after Indira Gandhi had been assassinated. 
And, you know, I come out of the plane and, you know, you're walking around New Delhi and, and, you know, it was, uh, you know, probably everyone here is too young to remember this, but she was assassinated by her bodyguards who were Sikhs. And so the, and so Hindu mobs were going around the streets of New Delhi, tracking down Sikhs and, and, you know, basically lynching them on the spot. And that was my first, uh, you know, exposure to uh, Asia, but not, you know, it was quite powerful. Uh, but, you know, I went from there and, uh, you know, ended up sort of loving my time in Asia. And, and I'm anticipating your next question because <laughs> it made me want to go back, you know, to Asia, you know, quickly thereafter. How soon after did you go back? I know you ended up living there, but first, what was it like when you started your job at the law firm? And then when did you move to Asia? Well, I started at the law firm in, uh, um, in, Oh, I, by the way, you know, I, the other thing I want to do in law school, I mean, I had always thought I'd go to law school and I'd become like a litigator and I'd put bad people in jail and then I would defend good people who are wrongly accused and do all that stuff. And then one of the things I learned in law school that I had absolutely no skill set in that area that, I mean, I hate, hate public speaking. You know, it's like, uh, um, it's like, it still makes me nauseous and like watching you prepare for this where you're like, you're looking at and you're smiling, but you're actually thinking in the back of your head. I just, I, I so relate to that. Um, Are you nauseous right now? No, no. I mean, now that I'm into it, it's okay. okay. It's the, it's the, it's the anticipation, but the hardest form of public speaking that I've ever experienced is cross-examination. And I've only done it in a sort of trial, a fake setting, like in, and, you know, you're asked this person a question. You're supposed to respond to the answer they respond to. Twelve people are looking at you. And I just froze. And I'm like, man, I can't be a litigator. So uh, <laughs> so um, I was going to become a, a corporate lawyer, which was good if you want to live overseas, because that's who they sent overseas. They didn't send the <laughs> litigators. So so I so I started work at the end of 84. And then I, I, I got transferred. I, you know, I did everything I could to let them know that, you know, I wanted to work overseas. And they sent me to Hong Kong in 86. What was that like? Hong Kong, yeah, it was fantastic. I mean, and we were doing debt restructuring at the time, which is very much um, uh, debt restructuring of shipping companies. In the mid-'80s, the shipping industry globally had collapsed and uh, oversupply, you know, uh, and if you think about it, I don't know how many lawyers or financial people are in the room, but basically a ship is a power plant, but it moves jurisdictions, uh, which means it can be seized in any port that it goes into. but, you know, it got me sort of, you know, uh, revved up on the idea of, you know, okay, well, if I'm going to, you know, if I'm going to sell out and be a corporate lawyer, I want to actually deal with physical assets. I don't want to just do bond deals for IBM or something, you know, and hope that I can get IBM, you know, 10 basis points cheaper debt or anything like that. And, and so I started with shipping. But then, you know, when I moved back uh, to the to Case in New York in 89 after Tiananmen Square, uh, you know, I, I quickly migrated from shipping to power plant finance, or, or obviously doing the legal side of that. How and that's it? how I got into the power industry. How was it being back in New York, and, and what was it like as you were getting into energy? Um, you know, New York in 19, I, you know, it, I don't know, it was good. It was good. I don't, I don't. And <laughs> what, you, I, what I are we talking found, about? <laughs> I found New York and Hong Kong actually to be very similar cities in terms of the energy. You know, the only difference was the topography, you know, Hong Kong you know, has mountains and Manhattan is flat. And, you know, but I actually like the dynamic as a, you know, young person of both places. And then uh, how long did you spend back in New York before you moved back abroad? 
So I get back and, you know, I'm a lawyer for a little while, but, uh, you know, I, you know, I, um, I, you know, I started writing these memos to the partners of how they need to create a specialized project finance group. Because at that time, at least Wayne Case had the view that every sort of corporate lawyer should be able to do everything, which was a really dumb point of view. Because I can tell you one day you're doing project finance, the next day you're doing a, you know, a double dip leverage lease thing. I mean, you just can't, you know, master all these things. I said, you know, there's going to be this I think project finance is going to take off. So I'm writing all these business memos about how they market themselves. And the last thing any law firm wants to hear is some snotty fifth-year associate tell them how they should run their, their business. And so I wasn't that popular, which is, is sort of a recurring theme on my career. <laughs> <laughs> but in part of my doing my you know, self-appointed research for this, I started reading about people who were doing uh, power plant development. And I came across this company, ABB Energy Ventures, which was a subsidiary of ABB, which built itself at the time as the world's largest electrical engineering company. And they had this development arm, which was based in Princeton, New Jersey. And I'm like, oh, that's not bad. I've been there before. It's a good place to live. And, and so I, I migrated out and went and became the uh, you know, deputy general counsel. And there are like 30 people. I don't know what my title was, but, but within a year, you know, I found out that uh, like my calling, the thing that I was good at was negotiating and that I was good at doing the business side. And my technique was to get the business person on the other side of the table to like me more than he or she liked his or her own <laughs> lawyer. And then like, you know, once I was in the room, I mean, quickly, like the business guy on our side would say, Dave, you just handle, I'm not even going to show up for the, the negotiation. And then I would say to the business guy on the other side and I'm, I'm, I don't know, I, I, I'm not sure I'm always going to be correct on the gender thing, but, you know, in the power industry, basically back then, everyone was male anyway. So these, when I say he, it was, it was a he, you know, and anyway. Um, so uh, my, my, my tactic would say, hey, why don't we get the lawyers out of the room and then you and I will figure this out. And, uh, <laughs> and, that, and, that, and that worked. That was, that was pretty good. Good strategy. At that, so. Had you already met your wife, Isabella, or not yet? Uh, I, I met my wife uh, during that time back in New York in 1991. You know, we both went to the same college and some people think, uh, yeah, you know, so you met her in college, but we were five years apart. So, uh, but uh, yeah, so uh, she was actually a summer associate at the law firm that, that I was at. And at this point in your career, did you have kids yet? When you, you were mean at before ABB? I met her? No, 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 no. When you're, when you're at, I mean, maybe, but uh, when you were at Anything's uh, possible. ABB, when you were at ABB Energy Ventures. Uh, did we have, no, I mean, we got married while I was at ABB Energy Ventures, but, but not at the time I started, did we have kids, but, gotcha. um, but we had kids, I mean, we had kids, our first child, like a year after we got married. So we didn't have one of those relationships that go on for five years is, double income, no kid, you know, we were pretty <laughs> much got, um, cause actually one of the things she told me, uh, you know, cause, uh, so I think I was 31 or 32 if I'm trying to figure the math right. And so, you know, I wasn't like a kid and I had seen enough already at that point, people had gotten married early and that sort of fallen apart. So I knew that marriage was more than about just romance. You got sort of like talk about, you know, what you want out of life. And, and I remember, cause you know, this is getting to the fact that we have five kids and depending on how you count, we may have six kids and I could actually tell you why we have seven kids, but that's another, <laughs> <laughs> but for, that's, 
For people but, who don't so, know the backstory, this sounds really bad, David. <laughs> oh, but we have a big family. But but so 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 people often ask me, well, did she tell you she wanted to have five kids at the beginning? I said no, but she did say, I want to have my first child before I'm 30. Which, given that she was 27 going on 28 at the time, you know that's you know that's pretty. So she was upfront about that. She's a planner. I like it. Yeah. Um, and then APB sent you back to Hong Kong. Wait, I got to right? tell you another story about her as a planner. <laughs> so we're living in Hong Kong and uh, we're planning this move back to New York in 1998. And she says to me, you know, uh, I want, you know, it's uh, much longer than this. Because I want to have a kid the third week of July next year. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, but you're not pregnant yet. And she's, uh, and she's like, yeah, but, you know, that's a detail. You know, and, uh, and, uh, and sure enough, you know, July 23rd, we had our fourth child. So I like I like it. Uh, <laughs> OK, so ABB uh, moves you back to Hong Kong. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. OK. And, you know, that was the 90s. And, you know, it was building power plants everywhere. It was crazy. And then what brought you back to the U.S.? Uh, um, well, what happened, you know, uh, was. Uh, I was, we were there for about four years, and again, it's lost to history, but on July 2nd, 1997, there, a financial crisis started in Asia when the Thailand uh, floated the bot. And it was a big issue in the IPP world because Thai PPAs were denominated in bot, but since the Thai bot had been fixed to the U.S. dollar forever, you know, people were buying power plants with U.S. dollars and getting paid in bot. And, and so it just, it caused the whole power system out there to seize up and, Lehman Brothers, who I was working for at the time, because I had moved from ABB to Lehman Brothers, they're like, look, we'd rather have you in Brazil doing privatizations than, uh, so I got moved back in 98. How did Lehman Brothers recruit you from ABB? Uh, <laughs> well, you know, they, uh, I never wanted to be an investment banker and I knew I'd be a bad one, but they came in and I liked being a developer, but they said, you know, we're going to triple your salary. And, uh, you know, when you get into that pressure, like I think we had three or four kids at the time and, and, you know, tripling my salary sounded awfully good. So that's why, that's how they recruited me basically with money. You probably want something more idealistic than that. No, no, no. I knew that was the answer. I just wanted you to say it. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. She's, she's harsh. I'll just just start calling you Dan rather. I was going to say, okay. Um, so then when you moved back to the U.S. after working with the Lehman Brothers in, with Lehman Brothers in Hong Kong, you joined International Power. Tell us about that, how you came to join. Well, I got back and I was not a good investment banker in Hong Kong and I was a horrifically bad one in, uh, in uh, New York. Wait, and, what made you a bad one? Well, you know, what made me a bad one was then there, there was this example. No one actually told me that as an investment banker, you're not supposed to tell the truth to your client. You're supposed to, <laughs> you're supposed to do whatever it takes to get a deal done, even if uh, it's a deal that you don't believe in. So the Southern Company uh, came to me and the, the guy who was the CFO of the Southern Company at the time were of their maybe it was of their subsidiary. They wanted to buy this company in Hong Kong called Hopewell that was run by a guy named Gordon Wu. And uh, we had this conference call and there were Lehman bankers from New York and, and us from Hong Kong. And this guy's name was Ray. I said, Ray, do not do this transaction. I said, the, the, the culture of this company that you're talking about buying is so far different from the culture of the Southern company that you guys will be at each other's throat. 
And he said, thanks, David, for the advice. And the next day he went out and hired Morgan Stanley and did the deal. And I mean, the Lehman Brother bankers in New York were so angry, you know, at me telling them this. Uh, anyway, so, um, so I didn't really like banking that much. And, uh, <laughs> and I also, I didn't like doing the privatization work in Brazil because, I mean, the thing you did as a New York banker and like now I'm, yeah, I'm getting towards 40 years old. It's like, you know, you go down to Brazil on the overnight flight. You fight your way from the airport in Sao Paulo into the city. You work all day and then you get on the overnight flight the way back. And I'm like, man, I'm getting a little old for this. <laughs> and uh, anyway, but um, I, the guy that I worked for at ABB, he calls me and, he, and this, you know, this is the type of magic moment I think that everybody hopes they have in their career. You know, and it all and it all comes because I had made myself indispensable to this guy when I was at ABB Energy Ventures. He calls me and says, this British power company, National Power, has gotten into trouble. They're splitting themselves into two parts, uh, a company called Energy and a company called International Power. They've asked me to come and be the CEO of International Power, and I want to do it because I've never run a public company. But I'm 60 years old, and I don't want to work that hard. You're 40 years old. Will you come and be my chief operating officer? I said, let me think about it. Yes. And, and the thing is, I was so clueless out what business were. I then had to go to a dictionary and look up what a chief operating officer <laughs> actually does. And so that's, I mean, so like my climb up the corporate ladder consists of coming in at the C-suite level, which, you know, was really a nice way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, definitely. And but what ended up happening as far as your role versus his? Well, he was a strange type of CEO in that, like the things that CEOs are supposed to or typically supposed to do was um, like strategy and things like that. He didn't want anything to do with that. I mean, the company had gotten itself in trouble because of a few problem projects. And the main problem project was in Pakistan. And, you know, and his and his thing was like, look, I'm going to troubleshoot the, the problems. You go you, you stay home and uh, and to his enormous credit, he's like, David, you're you know, a person with a young family. I'm not letting you go to Pakistan because if something happens to me, you know, I'm an empty nester and all that. I mean, it's incredibly noble because Pakistan and, and uh, the project was outside Karachi, which was an incredibly dangerous place to go to at the time. So he would like disappear for three weeks wow. at a time, which sort of left me to be sort of run this company. And ultimately the board just sort of decided that, you know, they'd rather just deal with me than him anyway, cause he was a sort of a, uh, you know, he was a rough personality and uh, didn't really fit with the knights of the realm that made up the board of international power. You know, the, the type of sir, this, that, they'll treat you as a, an equal as long as you, implicitly recognize that they are your superior you know it's like uh, uh i was better at you know sort of dealing with that because i you know i was young and what did that mean as far as your role you said they oh yeah so uh, so i was coo to him for two years and then they sort of pushed him out and made me ceo uh and i did that for a year was that awkward given that he had been your boss at ABB and he brought you into this Yeah, role? it was a little awkward, but we had sort of gotten crosswise with each other over how to deal. We had an American subsidiary that had built these power plants in ERCOT and, and the, our predecessors had come up with an incredibly ill-advised bonus scheme for these uh, people, which was based on how much money was invested rather than what type of return. And immediately upon building these projects, ERCOT was overbuilt. These power plants weren't going to make any money. And the company was still on the hook to pay this U.S. management team like $25 million in bonuses. And, uh, and he didn't want to pay. 
And he's just, I'm not going to pay. And I'm like, you know, we have an obligation as a company. We have a, there's, there's, there's no, we have a contractual obligation. Good companies honor their contractual. And he just, and he was one of those people that would like, it's not as common now. And, you know, we now live in an era of nurturing CEOs, like almost everyone's. But back then, probably half the CEOs were, were ruled by fear. Uh, and, you know, he would call me, you know, any, every name in the book to try and, but he wasn't willing to do it unless I was willing to go along. And so, so our, our relationship had strained a little bit, but, but it was, yeah, it was awkward because the board came to me and said, if he leaves, are you going to leave? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm my own person. And, uh, I don't feel great about that because that sort of gave them the, you know, to push him out. But, uh, but like I said, it, you know. Uh, that's what was going on yeah. at the time. As we say, sorry, not sorry. Yeah. Um, as far as your role as CEO then of International Power, at one point you wanted to merge with, at the time, bankrupt NRG. Tell us yeah, about that. you know, so International Power was, you know, it owned power plants uh, in 14 different countries. And one of the first conclusions I reached in, in, is that the public company investors, I mean, I was really bullish on like our opportunities in the Middle East and our investor base absolutely could not care. We also had a good position in Australia. They did not care. The only two countries they cared about was the U.S. and the U.K. And the U.K. had, had very limited potential. So I'm just like, well, we, we got to if we're actually going to you know, take this to the next level, we have to do something in the U.S. And I, I despaired at sort of doing it organically. So I, so at that time, this is the Enron era. Every, you know, U.S. companies were going into bankruptcy. And um, this is 2003, 2003. And I approached NRG, which was the first to go into bankruptcy. And I approached the creditors committee because, you know, it's relevant to all you here in northern California. The creditors committee basically decides things. And, I, you know, I said, well, what about we do a merger, you know, a, a merger out of bankruptcy, all that. And they came back to me like the next week and said, uh, yeah, no, we don't want to do a merger because U.S. investors don't like international businesses. But uh, how would you like to come and be CEO of NRG? And, um, and, and I said, yes, for a variety of reasons. What, some business, some personal. What were those reasons? Well, the personal was very simple. As I, you know, this company that I was running that in 14 countries, I was going to be on the road a lot. So I, I did not move my family from uh, Princeton, New Jersey. And, you know, it was, I mean, by then, you know, we had four kids We had you know, one more to come in terms of the first five. And, uh, um, and, uh, and so I was commuting every week and, you know, it's, it's tough. I mean, commuting I don't know if anyone in the rooms in a commuting relationship, but one of my board members says, you know, if, if you're in like that sort of long, super long distance community, either you have a very strong marriage or you had a very weak marriage. And I said, well, I think I got a very strong marriage, but I, I can tell you, it definitely, you know, leaving, uh, you know, your wife at home with, you know, four young kids, even if she has help. I mean, it's, you know, it's, I don't recommend that. Where and were you commuting to? From New Jersey to London uh, and uh, every week. And, you know, for all the ex, you know, there a surprising number of people actually do that. You know, they work for Goldman Sachs or something. They're in the front of the plane, you know, for as a UK corporate, I'm like, I'm buying this ticket myself. I'm in economy class, you know, and, and I'm, you know, a relatively big person. It, you know, it, was, it wasn't pleasant. I think I was jet lagged continuously for three years. But the, the, the main thing was the business purpose. I mean, NRG was a totally mediocre company uh, that was like every other IPP at the time, an Enron wannabe. And, um, 
But the idea, I mean, you know, I would say that chapter 11 for a capital intensive company, I love the idea of being the first out of chapter 11 with the cleaned up balance sheet, like all the mistakes they had made in the past cleared out by chapter 11. And now I'm going against, you know, Dynegy and Calpine, all these companies that have tried to make it work, um, you know, uh, without going into chapter 11. So I actually like the positioning of NRG. Because it was like a clean slate. Because yeah, the, the balance sheet was a clean shit slate. Yeah, maybe not the reputation. What was it like when you? Oh yeah, well you know the reputation. I didn't. Re- I, yeah, this was you know I could, I could I decided at some point in preparing for this I'm going to sort of start a list of all the things I did wrong, all the mistakes <laughs> I made. Uh, but um, you know, I was appealing to NRG's uh, creditors committee because I ran the one IPP company that had not over leveraged or overpaid for things. So I thought when I came in. And, you know, brought a new management team with me or recruited one that, you know, we would be free to like act, you know, aggressively. But the institutional investors, like we tried to buy something. Yeah, I think Duke Power had two uh, combined cycle plants in Arkansas that they were selling for like $100 per kilowatt, like 10% of replacement costs at the time. And I remember like all the financial people, they wanted to do a model. I said, dude, you know, don't, if you can buy an asset for 10% of replacement costs, I, I don't need a financial model. Mm-hmm. You know, let's just do that. And that word, the word leaked out to our investors. I got a call from MFS and they're like, and it's a, a woman who's still very much uh, a leader and uh, a woman named Maura Shaughnessy. And she said, David, you know, you're, you're in the penalty box. You know, you don't, you don't come out of bankruptcy and start buying stuff. I'm like, hey, man, that wasn't me that got them. And she's just like, no, NRG is a company's in. So we had to, we had to, you know, spend a couple of years actually making money and, and being restrained. Yeah. So in the role, did you come into it and just feel super confident and like you're at conferences and people say, yes, this is the new leader, we're on board? Well, I mean, I, you know, no, that didn't happen. <laughs> no, I mean, the main thing that we, that I had to deal with, how do you recruit uh, people? And, you know, I used to have this shtick that sort of got increasingly grandiose uh, over the years I was at Energy. It started with like saying, look, we're all here in the private sector to make money, but don't you want to have impact? You know, this company is flat on its back. You know, you can come in here, you know, whatever level and you can have impact on the, you know, on resurrecting this company. And then I would sort of take that to the next level and say the whole industry led by Enron is in disgrace. You know, we can lead the industry, you know, out into the, you know, and, you know, and you get sort of another level of, of, of talent that will fall for that one. And then ultimately, and as I sit here and look at Sam Steyer, I remember completely doing this BS to him, which was uh, then you get the point once you become a purpose driven company, which for us, you know, I know you want to go in sequential or, you know, sort of happened to like 2009. And, you know, I said, look, this is a chance to work in the private sector, but change the world. You know, and and, you know, do you want to, you know, math guy, do you want to go, you know, write algorithms for Google to get people to buy shampoo or do you want to come and keep the, you know, keep the, you know, keep the earth from melting? I mean, and, and it's amazing. I mean, when we took the path to green, one of the unintended consequences, which was a positive one, that the talent that we could, you know, we could go to Stanford Business School or any of these schools and really recruit successfully against the, you know, the Goldman Sachs's and the McKinsey's of the world. And we never could have done that. I mean, who wants to go work for a power company? 
seriously. So, uh, but purpose-driven power company is something. Mm -hmm. At what point? So you joined Energy in 2003, 2004? 2003, 2003. December 1st, 2003. You know how I know that? How do you know? Because I was actually fired on December 1st, 2015. <laughs> and, and, you know, so on my 12th year anniversary, and when they came in at the beginning of the board meeting and said, you're out, I said, oh, you know, I thought you were going to wish me a happy anniversary. No. <laughs> I actually wish I'd been that, you know, sort of in the moment, but uh, I wasn't actually. Um, that so wasn't what I said. <laughs> <laughs> um, so at what point between the beginning in 2003 and the end in 2015, was there a moment when you said, I need to care about climate? Because you, you didn't necessarily throughout yeah, the so, course so of Yeah, so it's... Um, I, I'm not naturally like an environmentalist. Like, you know, we were talking about before, Emily, and, I, and she sort of asked me, well, what animated you when you were younger? And I'm like, well, actually what animated me when I was younger was opposition to capital punishment. That's what I really felt strongly about. So I only really became an environmentalist when I got a job in a smokestack industry. And, you know, you get in the job and, and, you know, there's a lot of things you have to master. And, you know, it started as socks and knocks, you know, in the 90s. And then there was this strange period that no one talks about. And maybe it's only because I was with a British company going to an American company. But there was a period about 2000 where Europe was already focused on carbon. And I remember one of my last conversations at, at uh you know, at uh, International Power is like, oh, there's going to be this carbon trading scheme and they're going to allot credits based on, you know, our emissions. And I remember saying to our technical people, do we even count our emissions? Do we know what they are? And they're like, yeah, we actually do know what they are. But so so, so I started uh, that, but then I, I got moved to NRG. And in the United States at that time, the entire environmental focus was on mercury. And, you know, for people who don't know, like a coal-fired power plant that burns 5 million tons of coal a year produces about 80 pounds of mercury. And they're like, okay, we're going to have to get mercury down by like 90% in the next 10 years. And if you think about just as a volumetric thing, how do you find 80 pounds of mercury in 5 million tons? And so we sat around for a couple of years like, man, this mercury thing. And so I think my, my excuse for not, uh, you know, having the big revelation that, that carbon greenhouse gas was a game changer and, and different as bad as socks and knocks and mercury is that, that it was different. It, I, I, I'm very embarrassed by how long it took me to get with the program uh, and, you know, trying to get this company back on its feet. How many more excuses do you want me to? No, no, no. No, because I finally, I finally got with the program in 2006. Is that what you were looking for? Yes, and, <laughs> and what got you with the program? Well, a couple of things happened in quick succession. In fact, two things happened on the same day. But first, uh, you know, and it's funny, when we were talking about this, uh, you know, Emily doesn't know what the CIRA conference is. Does anyone know what the CIRA conference is in the room? The CIRA conference is the Super Bowl of conferences for fossil fuel people. You know, Cambridge Energy Research Associates, it's in Houston every year in February, March. Heads of state, uh, energy ministers go. And, and like I got invited to be part of the opening plenary thing. And this guy, Jeff Sturba from Public Service in New Mexico, he's speaking before me. And he starts going on about carbon. And I'm just listening, uh, like right next to him, I'm like, I have no idea that all this. And he was just very persuasive. <laughs> I also remember 
that he was doing his whole 20-minute speech from the back of a napkin. Literally, he had written his points on the back of a napkin. I thought that was very cool because, as you know, I, was, I hate public speaking, and there were like 1,000 people in the audience. So first, that got me thinking. I went back to Princeton, and you know, one of my biases is I, don't, I, don't, I not only don't like investment bankers, I don't like management consultants. And, so, uh, and I'd never actually worked with any. And one of our executives said, hey, will you please take this meeting with McKinsey? Uh, they want to come and talk to you about this carbon thing. And so they came in late in the afternoon and they started going through their carbon abatement curve, which I'm sure everyone in the room has seen. And I just, I don't know, I just, uh, I just got, wow, this is a big issue. And this, you know, and I, um, I started thinking about it. And then you wanted me to tell that, yeah. And, uh, and I remember I, the meeting was late in the day and, and it went over for like an hour and, you know, I ran home as was my style because I wanted to see my kids. You know, there was like, you know, seven to nine, like that's the time I was going to be, you know, with my kids. And, uh, and so I sprint in the house. And one of my things is that, I mean, back then was like I, you know, I read to my child, the youngest child before they went to bed. I run through the kitchen and my wife's like, I'm just like, is Christopher awake? And she's like, yeah, but he's, you know, he's down. And she hands me this book and I run upstairs. I open the book and it's a Bible. She's given me a Bible to read to him. And it's a children's Bible, honey and, uh, honey and something Bible. And, you know, I just thought, okay, we'll read him the Bible. And I just started, you know, from Genesis and you get to the fourth uh, verse and it's about God creating the sky and spinning his cotton candy. And I'm looking at my, I'm looking at my, my child at the time and I, I'm doing the math because I think I learned for the first time that day that, you know, that the world scientists were telling us, you know, we got to be 90% down by 2050. And I just remember doing the math in my head and I'm like, you know, my son that I'm looking at in 2050 is going to be the same age that I am right now. And, and, you know, at that point, you know, even though to young people, I probably look ancient, you know, or, you know, mid forties or whatever it was like, I mean, I expected to have a, you know, that that was like prime of life. And I'm just like, my son's this child is going to be dealing with this issue because I didn't do anything. And so, so it was the combination of, you know, the, the fact-based thing with McKinsey. And then, you know, I, I think maybe, earlier, and you and I talked about this, is the intergenerational aspect of the challenge and the issue and the responsibility, you know, got to me in a very personal way right from the beginning. And, and the fact that that doesn't get to everybody still perplexes me is how we can just ignore the, you know, what we're doing to our children and grandchildren. When you that's kind of a downer. Can we, you bring it up from here? No, it's not like, a downer at all. No, it's it's uh, it's really poignant, and I think a lot of people feel that way, especially if they have kids. Um, so you took that to NRG and said we have to do something, and they said yes. Yeah, no, that didn't happen either. So uh, <laughs> so this, yeah, but I did. Um, fortunately, one of the things that I think, and I'm uh, I won't bore you all, but I mean, corporate governance in the United States at, in public companies is just horrifically bad. And um, and one of the things and this isn't actually the worst part of it is that, you know, obviously, as you know, people know my story a little bit, thanks to, to Julian and all that. But, you know, I never was able to go to the board of directors at NRG and say, you know, we should go from brown to green because it's the right thing to do. You know, if I literally had ever used words like that, they would have laughed me out of the room. 
So, um, so I had to do what you talk. I had to talk to the board about the move to the brown to green in terms of risk avoidance and growth opportunities. And so, like that line that you said, this is the only double-digit growth opportunity. I use lines like that heavily, you know, with them. And at that point, you know, when I woke up the problem, you know, we looked at the carbon intensity of our company relative to other power companies. And at that time, there were 53 power com- major power companies in the United States, and we were 52nd in terms of our carbon intensity or second worst. And ultimately, we made the problem worse by buying the company that was worse than us, <laughs> a, a company called Mirant. And, um, and, uh, and so we started on a sort of a generation, the, the basic first strategy of the company to deal with carbon was sort of accelerate out of danger. Don't sell the existing power plants because basically, you know, they are providing the profits that would fund the move into green uh, and just really build up the, the low to no carbon part of the, of the portfolio, you know, quickly. Why did the board oust you? Oh, so you're just going to jump from 2006 I mean, to the, 2015? Yeah, for the sake of time. Uh, <laughs> uh, the board asked me because, um, well, the I mean, you know, you're only as strong when you're running a public company. You're only as strong as your stock price performance. So I always say, you know, it's like being, you know, uh, head coach of a football team. If your team goes four and 12 one year and maybe it's because you lost your quarterback and your best pass rusher and all, someone's still going to take the hit. And, and, you know, I got fired at the end of 2015 at a time when our company was on pace at the end of November. And we had a fiscal year that was the calendar year. We were on pace for record EBITDA in that year, but our stock price had underperformed uh, the market. Uh, the peer group for second year, we had underperformed in 2014. We were underperforming in 2015. And, you know, the immediate cause and the timing of it was that the board was deathly afraid, as all American boards are, that they would get an activist shareholder. And, and they wanted to show that they had done something um, because an activist, you know, comes at a company usually in January because they have to come in, because they have to be prepared to go to proxy, which occurs in March. And so they fired me at the end of November because that was the last board meeting they had. And then there was some specific things that there was some other, you know, timing aspects. But but basically that was it. And, you know, I, you know, I was, um, you know, if you want to be an outspoken CEO, then, you, you know, you better outperform because if... Uh, you know, there was a guy that was my original CFO, uh, Bob Flexen, who then became the CEO of Dynegy. And he got a contract extension as I was getting fired. And he, you know, he wasn't, you know, big, you know, he wasn't a loudmouth like me. But and his his company stock performance during that year was as bad as, you know, almost as bad as ours. And so, you know, if you're going to be controversial, you know, you have to outperform because if, you know, if you underperform, you know, uh, then, you know, you're going to take the fall. And if you try and do good things in society, like you look at, I don't know if anyone followed when Paul Pullman at Unilever got subject to an activist. And, the, you know, the minute your, your company stumbles a little bit, they blame it on the fact that you're, you're trying to do good things outside of, you know, bottom line performance. So, so you know, it's, it's a risk that, you know, comes with the territory, you know, if, if, you, know, if, you, if you're wanting to do the right thing. 
Having been having been a champion for clean energy in energy and that not working, what was it? What was the transition out like? Well, you know, it was difficult because you know I had been an investment banker and investment banking. When they fire you, that you're literally walked out of the building. You know, with like security guards, you're not allowed to go back to your desk. And I'd seen that, like, you know, who would ever do that? You know, when we let people go at energy, we were, you know. But I mean, I got fired at a board meeting in Houston and NRG was joint headquarters, but, you know, I was based in Princeton and, you know, I never stepped foot again in the NRG headquarters in uh, Princeton, you know, quite frankly, because, you know, if I walked in and it was an open office format, so if you walked in, like everyone would see you and if you know, uh, and uh, the calculation I went through is like everyone sort of like embraced me and all that, then that might be uh, embarrassing to my successor. On the other hand, if everyone gave me the cold shoulder, my feelings would have been so hurt. So I just, you know, I, I because they actually, they fired me on December 1st, but I was on the payroll till January 1st. So I actually was an employee for an extra month, but I never, and it was difficult because, um, you know, you really see what people are like both inside the company and outside the company by, um, you know, you really see what, who your friends are. Uh, yeah. Who were your friends? Well, I, I was saying to, I was saying to Emily, you know, and this, you know, is not a statistically, you know, uh, you know, not a statistically relevant sample, but I would say that the management team of NRG consisted of 12 people at the time, you know, executive vice presidents, a couple of the senior vice presidents, and eight of them were men and four of them were women. And all the four women, they, 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 they were loyal to me, to the, uh, the very end, and all of them left within a few months. The, the eight men, they changed their allegiance in about five minutes. So, uh, you know, and, uh, and you, know, I, you know, I don't know if I should, you know, that's obviously I don't want to make gender-based, uh, but I, I thought about it because I, I used to do a lot of pro bono work in Haiti after the earthquake and became sort of friendly with, you know, Paul Farmer of Partners in Health and with Sean Penn of uh, JPHRO. And both of them said to me, I don't know if they've said this in public, that they're left to their, you know, and they're obviously purpose-driven organization, very specific purpose, you know, save lives in Haiti. And both of them said left to their own devices, they would hire only women because, uh, you know, they're just like, well, if you're going to be a purpose-driven company and if a woman believes in the purpose, she'll do anything, you know, to... You know, while men, like I remember, like I'd say, okay, we got to reorganize like this. And, the, and you would see the women, and they would be sort of evaluating whether the reorganization that you were planning was, uh, was actually going to, you know, sort of achieve the purpose faster. While the men, they were like, okay, what does this mean for me? Is he taking away, you know, is he, is he uh, you, know, you know, men, saw, or at least the men I worked with, they, everything was through the filter. What does this mean to me personally rather than what's, you know, you know what's the uh, best thing for the company and what, the mission that we're trying to achieve? And, you know, you got to be, you can't be a prima donna about this because, you know, it's private sector. Everyone's there to make money. But, you know, you're also trying to have impact and be team players and things like that. Tell us about the letter that you wrote to NRG employees that went viral after you were fired. Yeah. So, I mean, I felt bad, you know, because like I never went in and, you know, saw people at the headquarters again. And, um, and you know, there was probably like most companies that, you know, there were these, there was a thing known as departure memo, you know, people sort of say, hey, it was great knowing you, you know, I'm going, here's like forwarding number. And, um, 
you know, I, I wrote an email to the, my uh, successor who, you know, was my own chief operating officer. And this is a person who had come in as a trader. I mean, a trader, not traitor, <laughs> had come in as a trader and had, and had risen up, you know, you know, as, you know, one of my protégés from the head of trading and the head of uh, COO and all that stuff now. So, I mean, I thought we were close. I thought we were tight. And uh, I wrote him this note. And one of my traditions, like, again, like a lot of companies, uh, write a, you know, a note over the Christmas holiday season. And I figured he was going to do that this year, in this year at 2015. So I wrote him about, you know, December 15th. And I said, uh, you know, hey, you know, I would like to sort of say goodbye. I'd like to write a memo and distribute it in the internal channels the way it's done. And, uh, and I don't want to get in the way of your Christmas thing. So, you know, here's my letter that I want to send internally. And he wrote back and he said, no, that's not happening. You know, he said, uh, you know, maybe, you know, he says too raw right now. And, uh, you know, maybe in several weeks time. And this is the part that really, you know, got my got me, you know, going was he said, uh, and when it does come, when I do say that it's time that you can communicate with, you know, my employees, um, I will tell you what you can say. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, no, no, you don't know who you're dealing with. And, uh, and, and so I took the exact same letter, which was only really meant to communicate with them. And, you know, I, uh, and I, I, you know, put it out through, I, you know, green biz, uh, on my last official day of work, you know, January 4th, and from what I understand, this is, this is a great lesson for the way corporations work. The communications people within NRG, I found out, later tried to suppress it internally, and that just made it contraband, which meant everyone wanted to read it, you know, and so, so by trying to suppress it, of course, they, uh, they actually made sure it was circulated, you know, more than, uh, than it probably should have been. Love it. Um, last question before we move into our high voltage round. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm scared uh, about that. <laughs> um, in all of this, what lessons were the most important ones that you learned? Which lessons were most important? Uh, well, you know, I, I would say that uh, the most important lesson I learned uh, was you really have to think through the consequences. Like, you know, I thought that my specific, my individual contribution to the goal of, you know, winning the fight against climate change was to show how uh, traditional uh, energy company could make the transition from brown to green, you know, and be successful, create value in it. And I thought that was a worthy goal because I thought then, and I continue to believe now, that it's, it's going to be unbelievably difficult for us to get where we need to go and on climate change with the status quo incumbent industry basically resisting it or i mean back then they resisted now they're slow walking you know they're slow walking it um and i thought that if i could show because there's not a lot of you know there's not a lot of creativity in the power space is that if we could show that brown to green was a value creating strategy everyone else would follow and, and I was 100% convinced that we would get there. And I always use the shining city on the hill, you know, metaphor when I talked internally. Um, what I never thought about was that if I failed, um, that that would send the opposite message to the CEOs of incumbent companies. And, 
And it was particularly poignant because one of the things I'm proudest about that I get no credit for is that uh, 14 people that worked for me at, uh, during my career became public company CEOs. And at the time I was fired, the CEO of every other publicly traded IPP was an ex-NRG executive. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so I, I, the first time I realized it was when someone asked me afterwards, like, well, so who's going to take your place as the sort of the, the green apostle? And I'm like, who would do that? Like the, the guy, you know, the people that worked for me, they're now CEOs. They saw me get fired for doing that. And, and so the idea that I actually hurt the cause, you know, was probably was one of the things that I really struggled with uh, afterwards because I didn't think through the consequences of failure. Good lesson. Um, we're going to move into our high voltage round. Okay. These are quick questions with quick answers. Also, I realize um, we are uh, close to the time that we set for the interview. So if anyone needs to depart, we understand. But if you'd like to stay, stay for the high voltage round. Question one, David Crane, what animal would you be and why? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I'd be a dog, man. Dogs, dogs, <laughs> dogs have the life. I mean, they just <laughs> sleep all day. I've never actually answered that question, but uh, yeah, I'd like to be a dog. Makes sense. In the right house. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If you had to start a new career tomorrow and you do, what would it be? Um, You mean absolute new career outside the energy space? Up for your interpretation. Well, let me answer it quickly in two. One is I actually think that, you know, in the scheme of, I mean, I would definitely stay in the world of fighting climate change. And I I think... uh, transportation is is just the most important thing now we've basically won the fight against uh, smokestack emissions it's just taking a little time to declare a total victory but um but the electrification of transportation to me is the most interesting uh area having said that and more specifically to me i mean i think the most interesting most important thing going on in the power space today is what happens with pacific gas and electric because Again, the idea that if there's a utility that's basically laying flat on its back can be resurrected in a way that's consistent with the clean energy future, it's just so unbelievably important, well past what's going on in Northern California and the tragedy of wildfires. And so, you know, in a very different way, that's extremely intriguing as well. Do you want to take over another bankrupt energy company? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, who knows? But uh, um, when have you failed? Oh, yeah. How long? uh, You don't have enough time. uh, Well, when I, you know, one of the things I like to do uh, in talking to institutional investors, when when they ask the question is like, how do you define success at energy? First and foremost, I said, you know, success to me is everybody at my company going home, you know, at night in the same way that they came. And and, and we had a great safety record at Energy, top decile every uh, year of the 12 years I was there. And it was not top decile when I got there. But in my last year, we had a fatality, uh, you know, uh, at one power plant, uh, a guy who guy killed a friend of his walking in the parking lot. Like he was in a pickup truck and he came around the corner. And, and that's a failure. When you have a fatality, that's, that, it doesn't get any bigger failure than that. And, you know, I think about that all the time. Is there something I could have done? And, you know, and I tell you, going to the funeral, seeing the, 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 the wife and the children, it's just, you just don't ever want to go there. That's tough. That's tough. Um, 
different type of question. What is the best investment you've ever made? It could be financial, emotional. Oh, well, when you put in emotional, then you know, I say best investment is, you know, getting married to my wife. But uh, no, but I'm very proud as well. I mean, when we went into the retail business, and I think, you know, we were able to buy a retail company um, for $287 million at the height of the financial crisis that paid for itself in two months time. It made $280 million the first two months we owned it. And in my five years that we owned it, I think it returned $6 billion in cash. And so I'm very proud of that investment. But the lesson, you know, that the only reason we could buy this company for $287 million was they had gotten their, you know, they had gotten their balance sheet wrong. And it was the middle of the financial crisis and everyone else was, you know, hunkered down in the fetal position. And we went out there and said, well, you know, we're not going to, we were also subject to a hostile takeover at the time. So it was a strange situation to go out and buy something, but it was an unbelievable. And it was another deal where like, uh, you know, I'm just like, look, I don't need a financial model. We can buy that thing for 287, just go do it. And, you know, before they figure out that, you know, it's worth five or six times that. Is there something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? <laughs> um, nothing immediately uh, comes to mind, but I would I would say that one of my lessons, uh, you know, we pursued the development of a nuclear power plant. And what was true at the time we started the development was not true like two years into the development. And I never stopped to reconsider uh, my basic assumptions. And that was something that was one of the great learning lessons because we ended up, you know, writing off uh, $353 million in cash and development expense uh, after Fukushima. So um, so that's what, uh, that's what comes to mind when you say that. Who has had the biggest influence on your life? Um, you know, I, I would say that, you know, it's, it's definitely, you know, uh, my, uh, my family and my, I mean, it's hard for me to actually separate after, you know, raising five kids, the difference that the impact of having my children has from my wife. But you know, and you and I talked about this, you know, being CEO is, a, I think, an inherently and by necessity, an extremely lonely uh, job. I mean, there is no one in your company that you can, no matter how friendly you are with, you're different from the other people in the company. And, and the best way to, you know, just sort of, you know, keep it real is your family, because you come home and like you walk in, hey, take out the garbage and your parent and your kids make fun of you for, you know, what you're wearing. And, you know, and uh, and uh, I've just learned a lot from my family. So um, that's what I would say. When are you your best self? Um, you know, I, I think I'm my best self a little bit under in a crisis situation. Like I said, we were actually subject to hostile takeover attempts twice. And one was in the middle of financial crisis, which was pretty stressful because there was a time in September of 2008 where NRG, which was a double B minus company, denied credit to Goldman Sachs. Uh, and, uh, and I just remember walking out of the meeting saying, man, the world is really falling apart when we won't, you know, accept Goldman Sachs as a counterparty. <laughs> a dumpy company like us not accepting Goldman Sachs. And I just think in the, in the crisis situations, I did pretty well. I'm proud of what I did in those two situations. And then we had, I remember, we had a, um, we had a, a bit of a scandal where one of the uh, power plant managers had sort of lied to the ICO about, ISO about being available over the weekend. And, and you know, 
I got called by the management. I was on the top of a mountain skiing, and I remember laying out for the management as they said, okay, well, this is our three-part strategy. You know, we call FERC and we, and we you know, we self-disclose and we do this and we, and we have to, you know, get the power plant managers today and read them the right act and we have to fire the guy, you know. And, uh, and so I think I, I, I'm proud of what I did, how I handle crisis situations. What is your worst trait? You know, my, my worst trait, uh, well, the trait that I was always conscious of as, you know, in the company was like, uh, well, this is both a, is that I didn't like to work with people I, I didn't like personally. And, and yet I, I would say to people, like, there'd be someone who was a bit of an irritant to other people. I'm like, look, this isn't a popularity contest. So, you know, I, I never liked hypocrisy, but I would speak out of both sides of my mouth. Like when other people complain, oh, so-and-so's too rough on people. And I'm like, you know, and you, there are people that no matter what they achieve, if they're too rough, I mean, you got to get rid of them. But, you know, this wasn't the case. Just the person was a little irritating. And so I would say one thing like, yeah, oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's about, you know, achieving results and all that. But I was completely like, I don't, I don't want to spend time with, I don't want to be in the room with people I don't like, you know, so, uh, so, and again, we had this open office format. So, I mean, I sat like three feet from the chief financial officer. It's like you really had to like someone in your pod, you know, because it was pretty close quarters. So, uh, When was the last time you were scared? <laughs> well, you know, I probably shouldn't say this out here in uh, uh, Northern California, but I mean, you guys got to do something about the homeless situation in San Francisco because I... I got in into downtown San Francisco last night and I went out for a little walk and I retreated to my, you know, hotel room. And, you know, I've been in a lot of cities. You know, I, I walk readily through Port-au-Prince, Haiti, you know, uh, and uh, it's just um, so I'm sure I could come up with something more meaningful. But the last time I acted scared was last night, you know, walking out of the streets where I decided not to go for a walk. And I went back, at, you know, 11 o'clock at night, the streets of San Francisco were... You know, it's cowboy country out there. Yeah. Um, uh, finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because? Uh, I think uh, companies uh, fail, uh, I, I actually think, for uh, lack of um, looking over the horizon, looking around the corner. I mean, I think every company in every industry in the age of, of transformation that we're in faces an existential risk. And it's amazing to me that, I mean, Take the coal industry. I mean, I got invited to a management meeting at Peabody Coal in 2008. I said, look, you guys, if you don't find a way to, you know, combust your product without putting carbon in the atmosphere, you're done. You know, and, you know, not that they would ever, you know, listen to me, but they didn't. And, um, you know, the whole coal industry, uh, so never tried to really get after clean coal. They just pretended that, you know, clean coal was something other than what it was. Finish the sentence for me. Success is? Um, well, I think success is actually being true to yourself because at the end of the day, you know, you're the one that has to live with yourself. And if you can't, uh, when it was clear that I was like in serious trouble with the board, uh, there's a guy out here, an environmentalist that was sort of my mentor. And he said, Dave, whatever happens in these next few months, be true to yourself. And, uh, and, you know, I got fired from a job and, you know, there was like a big article about New York Times. You wake up and, you know, your, your summary executions in the New York Times. And, 
yeah, you know, at the end of the day, I wouldn't have done it any other way, you know, that uh, I was true to myself to, you know, to the end. And, and true to, and I think, you know, doing what was in the medium to long-term interest of the company too. I mean, I just, it wasn't just for vanity. I think there was nothing about the direction that we had NRG on, which has been disproved by future, by subsequent events. I don't know then if you have an answer to this question, but if I could have done one thing differently, I would have. Um, yeah, well, I can't answer that very well. If I, what I would have done, I would have sold down the fossil assets, uh, quicker than I, than I did, uh, because, you know, the basic problem we had is we tried to make the transformation. We had 50,000 megawatts of conventional generation, even though we consider ourselves the largest solar power company in the United States at the time, it was like 2,500 megawatts. I mean, investors didn't care. I mean, we, we were a 50,000 megawatt conventional. So to achieve that transformation, I should have sold that part quicker. If the world knew me for one thing, it would be... Well, now I'd say if my, you know, world knew me for anything is since I'm, you know, not a, you know, player in the power space, it'd be, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, my family. I mean, my, my wife and children, I think, have more notoriety now than I do for a variety of uh, reasons. So I think to that point, we can't get through this up this podcast without you talking a little bit about them. Um, your kids and wife are remarkable. Will you say just a little bit about them? Well, yeah. So what I say very quickly is my kids, my five kids, they all get all their positive qualities from their mother. So don't don't be sitting there and say, wow, how could that guy have capable children? But one of the things that she, you know, she pushed them into was like, look, take a gap year after high school and my kids at age 18, you know, had the maturity, more maturity than I had coming out of, you know, college. And, and my wife's into endurance activities. And so each of the kids, four of them, because we still have a kid in high school, hasn't done it yet, you know, took on an endurance project. So the first child uh, became the uh, first openly gay person to climb the seven summits uh, and the fifth youngest ever. The second child. Can you say what the seven summits are? Yeah, the highest mountain in every continent. You want me? No, no, that's good. You want me to tell you? Uh, uh, the second child biked, and all these, all of them raised money for a charity as they did that. Uh, the second child uh, biked twelve thousand kilometers across Africa, raising money for conservation international. The the third child was the the girl. She walked the Pacific Crest Trail from Mexico to Canada, becoming the first woman to do it. Her finish her year, and the fourth child. You can look him up. He's in the Guinness Book of World Records. Uh, he became the youngest person ever to, to row across the Atlantic uh, solo. And uh, I'm really glad that you asked that question because he's only going to hold that record for uh, 20 more days because there's an 18-year-old out on the ocean right now that's going to beat his record as a 19-year-old. Um, can I, is it okay if I mention what Isabella is struggling with and yeah. doing? So um, David's wife, Isabella, uh, has stage four lung cancer. And at one point she couldn't walk, but she, in October, finished an Ironman. And as of a week ago, her and your daughter summited the highest mountain in the Western Hemisphere at 22,000 feet. Yeah, yeah, she did. Yeah, she's on a plane right now coming back. So the two of them, my wife and daughter. That's amazing. But having said that, you know, it's great when your kids get old enough so they're protective. Our, 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 our daughter wrote a text on the family text, which hopefully will never become public because our family text is a little uh, racy sometimes. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, 
But she wrote to the family, it was a terrible, terrible experience, and mother should never be allowed to mountaineer again. So uh, my wife's from Louisiana. She gets cold, and apparently it was like 30 degrees below uh, uh, zero. Last two questions. Uh, finish these sentences for me. I'm most proud of? Well, I'm most proud of my family. Last one, to build a successful startup, what it takes is? What I, I think, I mean, I, I'm, I'm tempted to say conviction, uh, and I think conviction is part of it, but too much conviction, you know, you know, you know back to the whole, you know, uh, innovator's dilemma, you know, you have to have a certain flexibility when you're, I think when you're doing startups, although I think everyone in the room probably has more experience with me directly doing startups, I'm more like funded startups, I mean, from a corporate perspective, but um I would say that, you know, the thing that I always tried to, you know, hammer in in management meetings was that, you know, we're, we're entering an age where machines can do things better than humans, almost everything better than humans. And, but the one thing they can't uh, substitute for is passion. So I would say that that's the answer I would give is that, the, that um, to be, just have the passion. Because if you have the passion, then sales, everything, I think, uh, you know, sort of will flow from that. Agreed. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a big round of applause for David Crane. You can listen to all our What It Takes interviews since 2017 right here. And join us for new stories of founders who are building a carbon-free future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. We're launching new episodes monthly throughout 2021. Subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with Postscript Audio. Powerhouse partners with leading corporations and investors to help them lead the next century of clean technology innovation. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, invests in founding teams, building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.fund. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough. Sean Marquand mixed the episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes. <laughs>